I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. An active response by human beings working together, not against technology, but against the way technology can be used to disenfranchise, disempower, and disengage human beings from one another. No, techno-feudalism is not inevitable. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, the tech columnist just laid off by the LA Times and author of The One Device and the brand new book, Blood in the Machine, The Origins of the Rebellion Against Big Tech, Brian Merchant. A lot of the very same instincts and very same sort of trajectories were established in those early days. The same inclinations of the people who were using technology in this very specific way, and that's to uh, concentrate power and capital, ultimately. Ryan will be sharing the lessons learned by the Luddites, not an anti-technology movement at all, but a workers' rebellion against the way automation was used to crush the underclass. What do the Luddites have to tell us about the age of AI? Let's find out. It's time to intervene on behalf of people and all living things. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. I've been getting a ton of calls from media outlets lately covering a recent highly circulated set of videos in which a few skateboarders and other San Francisco locals attack and then torch a driverless cab, an autonomous vehicle owned by Waymo, which is Google's robot car company. They wanted to speak with me as the author of the book, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, about the fact that people are now throwing skateboards at the Google car. But when I wrote Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, I wasn't arguing that we should attack technologies or the people who use them. 
I was lamenting at the way these potentially liberating technologies had been turned against people and places, and to the point where people and places were starting to react against them. Google originally was two college students taking down big, bad corporate Yahoo with a bottom-up algorithm. And because a few billion dollars a year of profit wasn't enough for its investors, they pivoted to an extractive company that made San Francisco unlivably expensive for the people who live there. Automation could be making our lives easier, but in the hands of these anti-social tech billionaires, they instead render us powerless. We can feel how these technologies are simply automating oppression and disenfranchisement. Once they don't need human workers anymore, we don't even have a means of resistance. What's a general strike in a world run by robots? That Waymo car feels like the precursor to a, a Waymo cop or robot replacement, only now it's defenseless. It's really just another version of replacement theory, which is why Steve Bannon and Alex Jones are now quoting my work. Even they get that there's something anti-human about all this. So no, I can't condone violence, even against stuff. I'm not into the how-to-blow-up-a-pipeline justification for attacks on infrastructure, however heinous, because they're usually precursors to violence against other people. But there's something, something still like an expression of human agency in an attack like this. Yeah, it went viral because it's expressing a repressed agenda in popular culture. They're not acting on our behalf, but they are expressing a widely felt anxiety. These technologies are not our friends, at least not as currently deployed. So helping us think through all this today and maybe helping us feel a little bit less guilty about that sense of glee mixed in with the horror of watching a perfectly innocent robot car go up in flames, it's my pleasure to welcome the writer who, until last week, was tech columnist at the Los Angeles Times, laid off along with much of their in-house writing staff, and also the author of some of my favorite accounts of the impact of technology on society, including the great book, The One Device, which is about the secret history of the now ubiquitous iPhone, and his new book, Blood in the Machine, The Origins of the Rebellion Against Big Tech. That's right, Brian Merchant. So, hey, Brian. Hey, Douglas, how are you? <laughs> good. It's good to see you. You look freshly showered or something. You look clean. Yeah. Well, you know, when it rains, it pours. So our uh, shower's actually clogged up and we're waiting on the landlord to respond to that. So I had a nice bath, a nice <sighs> luxury, uh, newly unemployed person bath where I just kind of sat in the bath and uh, marinated for a while. Wow. Nice. So you're an unemployed renter in an increasingly <laughs> feudalist nation. <laughs> <laughs> that I am. That I am. Yeah, well, uh, yeah. I mean, let's talk about that first. So, the L.A. Times. I always loved the L.A. Times. I mean, not everything about it, but I loved that it still had a working book review section, and it had what? What's her not name? Not anymore. The, that woman in um, in the op-ed page there, the editorial page, is great. She was from the Times op-ed page originally. Uh, uh, I forgot her name now, but the really quality 
I mean, they would they would call for, oh, would you write 1,500 words on why this, you know, media monopoly is going to be a problem? And then, like, read it and, and write <laughs> comments and questions back? You know what I mean? It yeah. was like, I remember from the early 90s, these editors who would read the stuff that you wrote and make comments about it and... You'd work with them, <laughs> yeah. Like in the like the way it's supposed to that, that that like sort of like platonic ideal of the I that was how my so my first interaction with the LA Times was when um my first book came out, which was about the iPhone, and right. I did an op- the I one did an device, op-ed. which is a great the, great. I mean, that's the just the t- if you don't even read the book, just listen to the title, the one device, and you 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 flash back to Steve Jobs curling over that thing. And it's just the perfect encapsulation of what that one device has has done, you know. Yeah, it was that was the intent, you know. Yeah. It was a we it was kind of a play, it was the first thing we thought to call it, and it was a placeholder. We thought we maybe we'd find something like I don't know more like sexy or a bot, yeah. but it just stuck because it was the most sort of oh. just comprehensive. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, yeah. Mm. So it was great. Like I, it was the kind of thing where I was the I was actually I think my editor was Julia Turner, who's now the um, I think the one of the editors left after this bloodbath. Um, still still editing the paper, but like yeah, she would she would call and she like I just had some ideas about this. What do you think <sighs> about this? And then she's like making the notes over the phone, and I was like, wow, this is like old school, sort of really plugged in, really caring about what's actually going to be printed. Um, and it was, that was honestly, that was my relationship with my editor who, uh, who is also gone uh, in these layoffs, uh, Jeff Bercovici, who is the, the editing yeah. the business page. Yeah. Well, it and still he, it feels better if you're going to be canned that the person who's canning you got canned too at the same time, at least, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, oh, it's not you. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you you hate to wish that on anybody, no. especially like an editor you're fond of. But yeah, if the whole department's being cleaved off and floating into the sea, it reflects, uh, I guess, yeah. less uh, personally on you. Yeah, yeah, and that was just because of that recent thing where they realized they were losing all this money. I guess you know it. It's still a real mystery. I mean, that's one of the great sort of uh, paradoxes, maybe is a gentle word to call about like newsroom management. Is that there's no transparency. We don't know what's going on. You know, you think like you're in the business of information gathering and being truthful and honest and trying to present the public with the, and we can't even get that from our own management. So it's really just uh, a really hazy. Um, ambiguous sort of massive chaos where you know the lead editor left and it sure looks like he was pushed out the door um and then shortly after two of his lieutenants left uh and whether or not they've left because of him or were pushed out who knows we don't even know who's firing us who's who made the decisions for the layoffs um so it's all just what if it's like Chinese hackers firing you and not even... Yeah, it wasn't even supposed to happen. <laughs> I <know>. Yeah. <laughs> but I yeah. know what you mean, though. I mean, I'm experiencing a similar thing at, at Queens College, at CUNY. You know, they're doing these draconian budget cuts and people who thought they were starting class teaching next week in contracted positions were let go at the last minute. You know, their health insurance and everything's gone. And there's this... And I know people write maybe more, more directly about it um, than you, you know, like Alyssa Cord and Astra Taylor, you know, about this widespread precarity that so many of us are experiencing in in 
the work that we do, where the things that we're incentivized to do, like what you were doing, you're going to write great pieces about technology that get lots and lots of hits. I mean, if you look at your metrics, you're getting the 2 million reads rather than the 102,000 reads. You know, you, it's, it's like I'm doing all the things that I've been contracted to do at a level beyond what you're asking me, hitting the actual metrics that you want me to hit. And that, when that isn't good enough, then what, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, that's what's so grim about, I mean, there was this, uh, this like sports writer who kind of went viral in the wrong way this year, uh, Pearlman or something. I wasn't familiar with him before this, but he said, you know, like, if you really want to hang in there, it's tough out there, I know, but what you got to do is you got to start the Substack, you got to start the, you know, blog, you got, if you're a young journal, you know, say, I'm going to do a podcast too, I'm going to do all this stuff. And people rightfully sort of revolted against that mindset because, yeah, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. You know, I just published a book that has gotten, you know, I'm not to like blow my own horn or anything, but got a bunch of accolades like your best book of the year in Wired and blah, 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 like hitting, not resting on my laurels, turning some a piece out every week. Like you said, getting good audience I have. And then like, does it doesn't matter. It does not matter. They, they fired Susie Exposito, who's just all, as all-star as right. you can get covering, uh, you know, uh, Latin culture and, and music and, and just a real superstar in the field. Boom, she's gone. It doesn't, there's no rhyme or reason. You cannot produce enough to satiate the, uh, you know, just the, the fickle whims of the billionaire that you're, uh, you're right. laboring for. Right, I realized that, right, when I was kind of let go from, from Medium as one of their, you know, official star writers or whatever, people, paid writers, I guess would be the better way to say it. <laughs> Uh, I, I kind of realized that there that that you can't it's like my pace of writing doesn't match the pace of the internet. You know, it's like shoveling coal into a friggin' railroad engine. You know, it's like how much do I have to produce? So two I'm now supposed to do two pieces a week or something? Even if you did. Even if you did, they would still have can't. They Cory Doctorow. There is no human alive that is more productive than right. Cory Doctorow in terms of written output. And he was at the same Medium program, I think, too. Yeah. I think we all br briefly overlapped there because I worked at Medium too, mm. and that wasn't enough to to save him either. They, they just the business model changed. Whatever oh, changed. Really? They, oh, good. You know, I'm not yeah. good for Cory, but good because I was thinking, am I just getting too old and slow? Because I, I look at Cory and go, oh, so he could do a piece every other day and a book every other month. So do I need <laughs> to somehow get there? Am I not turbocharged? Do I need better protein powder or psilocybin? You know, micro. What do I need to do that? And and I decided I just can't do it. Um, so so what? But the fact that he did it and still um, couldn't maintain the. So it's like okay. So now, which brings me to this brilliant book and its theme: Blood in the Machine, the origins of the rebellion against big tech. Now, I'm one of those few people who knew that when you call me a luddite, I say thank you, not fuck you, because <laughs> luddite doesn't mean anti-tech. Luddite, luddite means anti-tech um, that that is bad for humans. Um, you know. Basically, um, and but this brilliant book, um, Blood in the Machine, is not just about not just about the way uh, big tech uh, exploits humanity, but the way big tech uh, dovetailed with capitalism yeah. exploits humanity.
Yeah, I mean, it really was sort of in the gestational phases. Uh, or, or what we this apparatus that we could call. I mean, I'm a little. Some people have kind of taken uh, issue with the fact that I call it, it it big tech back then, but it's just. I mean, it's. it's I I hope it's read as sort of just kind of like you know a somewhat sly you know sort of winking or or you know you have, uh, just a, a just a mechanism that kind of allows us to kind of keep these two things loosely in mind. But that said, a lot of the very very same um, sort of, uh, you know, in- instincts and very same uh, sort of trajectories and uh, very, were established in those early days. The same inclinations of the people who were using technology in this very specific way, and that's to uh, concentrate power and capital, ultimately, uh, by doing things that are not, you know, associated primarily with innovation necessarily, but more with exploitation right. and being willing to sort of break down traditional structures, break down norms, uh, cause some immiseration, cause some suffering, being willing to do all those things. Right. Well, I mean, it's the, the chartered monopoly is really what made that possible. Because once you had chartered monopolies, you don't have to innovate anymore. You have a monopoly. So your focus, the way you're going to make more money is no longer by competing effectively with with competitors. It's going to be by how do I extract value more effectively and efficiently from the humans and resources? (laughs) <laughs> yep, and that and that's what this was from our early. I mean, it's just a, it's a drive towards monopolization because all that they wanted to do. Um, so just as like a qu- quick backdrop, Please, so we're yeah. talking we're talking about the um, sort of the, the 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 cloth making industry in in England um, in the 1700s and early 1800s was by far the largest um, industrial. Uh, industry. It was a non non agricultural uh, source of work. There was hundreds and thousands of workers. It was sort of responsible for uh, Britain's. Uh There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Sort of burgeoning economic might. So within, within this... Uh, within this industry, uh, you start to see again, as as you put it, sort of the the the, the sort of the the early stages of of, of we're, we're inching towards capitalism and a capitalist reorganization because we've got domestic economies mostly domestic labor where people are working in what's the the cottage industries. They have their machines. It's technology. They're good at using technology. They're technologists because they work their machines, repair them, mod them to their liking, make them a little bit more efficient, all within the confines of their house. But you have just thousands and thousands of people doing this, working in the actual cottage industry. 
Um, and the, the shift starts to come, yes, a little bit with people who realize that you can start to do what we would call automation today and automate some of these machines. But more so when people say, hey, well, if you get a lot of those machines that are doing some automating and you stack them, you know, on six stories of a building and hook it up to a, a you know, a water power, uh, then you then 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 you're cooking. Then you can really <laughs> lean into the division of labor. Then you can really undercut on price. Then you can really nobody's thinking about all the great, you know, improvements to mankind or technology. It's just you could produce more stuff cheaper. And the people that were doing that didn't care about communities that had grown up with this other mode of economic organization for decades and decades. We're talking like 200 years, uh, an economy and a mode of life had been formed around this. So the people who were willing to disrupt all that and disrupt really, I do think is the operative term, uh, become what I call the first tech titans, uh, you know, people, people like Richard Arkwright, um, who it's, is remembered as the father of the factory and the patenter of the, of, of the water frame that allows mass volumes of yarn to be spun. But two important caveats that apply today too. He didn't actually invent the thing. He kind of stole the ideas and patented it from, uh, before somebody else could, he kind of ripped off his inventor, a la Steve Jobs and, and Wozniak and kind of took the lion's share of the profits and his chief innovation, you know, a la someone like Bezos today was not that machine, but the fact that he's willing to put it into use, willing to, to create punishing conditions and willing to have factories that are two thirds child labor. So that's ultimately, what sort of moves the needle and allows him to become one of the the first sort of mega rich uh, uh, commoners? You know, he's not aristocracy. He grew up right. as a, a barbershop owner, so um, that part you know tracks. Like he, but the reason that he was able to do it wasn't because he had this brilliant spark. It's willing. He was willing to sort of corrode all these norms and standards and the cloth workers who fought against that, which I'm sure we'll be talking about more became the, 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 the Luddites. Um, right. And, and yeah. Now these cloth workers weren't the original Zabatours, right? They didn't throw their shoes in the machine. <laughs> no. So the first, the, you know, cloth workers tried for, for decades really. Um, and especially the first decade of the 1800s, once they, once they realized where all this was going and that that more and more shop owners were having to become factory owners and were, were, were having to sort of compete on scale if they wanted to stay in business. They realized that these automating machinery uh, were a- allowing the, 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 those factory owners to sort of reduce prices and undercut yeah. their wages and sort of. So they tried a bunch of stuff first. They fought, you know, there was, you know, machine breaking was kind of a tactic that always hung around in the background long before the Luddites came around. So if something was uh, grievous enough, they would, they sure would go, you know, it, w- it would happen. Um, but yeah, probably this- like the, the, the slaves in ancient Egypt were like sticking pebbles in the catapults or whatever, right? (laughs) Yeah, or you'd have a like sort of a visceral outbreak, you know, the spinning jenny, which was one of the very first sort of machines that sent the sent the whole trajectory in motion when 
when when when the inventor of that machine unveiled it, yeah, people like just kind of ran in and smashed all his machines because they knew right. they knew what use it would be put to. They knew he was doing it not to sort of bestow into the community and say, hey, how about we sort of ratchet up uh, efficiency together? We can all sell more stuff. We'll figure right. out a way to sort of make this benefit. No, he was hoarding them. He was keeping his design secret in his house. And he and he sort of knew that he was going to try to commercialize this thing to profit personally. Right, but and that's what folks found, found so uh, None of these guys back then were thinking about anything like UBI. They weren't. I guess, <laughs> I guess not. But you know what I mean? It's like, it's such an easy sell of like, you know, the same sell to, to the housewife of America, you know, oh, instead of washing clothes on this board, here's this machine and you'll push a button and throw your kid's stuff in there. And you're going to, I mean, that looked good. It, it shouldn't, it shouldn't it have been the same. Hey workers, look how much easier your life is going to be when you don't have to do this stuff. Yeah, it was really interesting uh, in terms of sort of the ideology that was uh, attached to these different pursuits because there wasn't, as, as as you alluded to earlier, there wasn't, you know, capitalism wasn't really fully formulated, much less understood. Um, but Adam Smith's teachings about the division of labor, about sort of the virtues of, of pursuing profit in you know, in 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 an above board way, you know, was really taking a, a, a sort of flight with the elites of the time. So there was a subset, and the people that supported this most ardently, sort of, uh, you know, could at least uh, justify what they were doing by this sort of economic dogma that was sort of this the Smithian, you know, that his opponents would call them the disciples of of Doctor A. Smith, and you see that in the Luddite letters, people opposing them because they're appealing to sort of the early sort of ideological strains of capitalism as sort of a justification for just running roughshod. Because no, you don't see it's it's decades until you see really earnest pitches made like that you do see some you know there's robert owens the the mill owner who's this fabulously wealthy businessman who who makes his working conditions a little bit better in the factory says we should provide education to everybody we should do all this we should build entire towns around the factory and then make everybody like he has this sort of collectivist um it's still very paternalistic yeah. like he's still gonna be the boss but he wants everybody to to do better and he really goes on a decades-long campaign to yeah. try to make that and I so thought adam smith was like that too though because he was all into sort of local businesses and you know land labor and capital you know all having an equal say at the table anti-monopoly yeah. yeah so it's like if they were you... really reading adam smith they wouldn't just want to exploit workers they'd want to figure out how do we make this work in a local economy well, that's a funny thing is early on, you just see how it's interpreted when it at these points when it really matters. Right. They interpreted and, it like the economist or Wired still interprets Adam Smith. Yeah. And it's not. And that interpretation isn't necessarily to playing out on the local level. Mostly it, where it really matters is in Parliament, where you have this new sort of echelon. They called themselves new Tories. It was uh, they were not supposed to be your grandpa's Tories, but they were the new conservatives who were sort of, um, you know, more liberal on some social issues, uh, you know, anti-slavery and, and, and things like that. Right. But they were embracing uh, Adam Smith as a doctor, as a as an excuse to let well enough 
alone, to, to, to exercise laissez-faire. Right. That was the biggest thing. So when the cloth workers came and said, hey, we're getting killed out there because there's these capitalists that have machinery that they can just kind of be more productive than we can ever hope to be, and they're grinding our wages into the dust, we need something like a minimum wage. What do they point to? They point to Adam Smith. They point to these new influential sort of lawmakers who can then make the case for, for having no protections at all. And so over the course of that first decade of the, of the, of the 18th century, uh, they do. They try so hard. They come in and they have petitions signed by tens of thousands of people. They have uh, data to back up what exactly is happening. And they want these really small sort of, they want a minimum wage. They want assurances that they won't be paid in truck or, you know, paid at the company store, that kind of right. thing. They want it paid in goods. They they want to, they want, uh, they, they want assurances. They want protections from, from fraudulent and sort of, you know, uh, copy, you know, material that's sort of ripping them off so right and they they didn't have unions to do this yet right they no and unions are outlawed uh 1799 combination acts um are on the books which are kind of a response to uh, you know right after the french revolution people in england were like hey maybe democracy is a good idea so anything that had the whiff of democracy in the 1790s was was stamped out so you couldn't publish tom Paine pamphlets you couldn't uh, have workers organizations and you couldn't you couldn't unionize uh, they called them combinations at the time and they were against the law and then when did we get the blood? <laughs> the blood in the machine uh, really starts churning in 1811. So after this whole process we've been talking about kind of culminates when in 1809, when Parliament says, okay, we've had it with you guys. We don't actually, you know what? We, we've made up our minds. Fuck all, all y'all. Right no- <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> not only are we not going to add any new laws to the books to protect you, we're going to tear up the old ones. We're tearing out all the regulations that put rules in place on things like apprenticeship, on quality of cloth that, you know, at the time only human cloth makers could could accomplish. Uh, They threw them all out and they said, you're on your own. You're literally on your own. And then we have a series of events like uh, the the trade blockade against Napoleon, a bad harvest, and all of a sudden people are literally going hungry in the streets. And 1811 is when the actual sort of uprising uh, begins uh, and in earnest. And you know it it, it becomes an organized um, campaign to very targeted ex- explicitly at sort of the the productive machineries that are taking the jobs of the people um so it's a working class popular movement you sort of in the style of, of of robin hood and it's organized under the banner of this apocryphal mythic figure ned ludd who is the you know he's he is uh he, he's got a giant hammer and he will smash the the machinery of oppression um and people you know cheered him in the streets they wrote folk songs about him. He was a hero. That's how that's how bad things were, and that's how acutely his this critique was felt among the mass. And did public he have like a time. cartoon face, like you know, like Guy Fawkes does, <laughs> little masks and stuff? It was before that you could really sort of mass produce a lot of uh, uh, you know stuff. So we don't, there, yeah, merch. <laughs> There's not as many logos. Um, there is like the most famous, you know, one thing that the Luddites would do is. Um, 
you know, sort of both as kind of like this, you know, transcendental or liberatory practice, and also in solidarity with all of the women who had lost their jobs um, to the to the previous uh, rounds of of automation. They would they would dress in drag. They would dress in women's clothes uh, when they would go on, on on these campaigns and parade through the streets with a hammer. Um, and so that's probably the most enduring image is like an art, but it's an artist's rendering uh, of of the Luddites, and it's like a giant man in a woman's clothing sort of like leading on his followers while a mill burns in the background and and you can find that one around um but yeah no at the time not really they're letters it's all letters so they sign them general lud or king lud and they you know once that the tactic starts in nottingham same neighborhood as robin hood uh and once it proves successful emulators you know crop up all over england um and and it proves like a really effective tactic because the the the, sh- the factory owners are on their heels they don't know if, if there is a real ned ludd how many there are <laughs> is how organized is this whole thing like it seems pretty threatening right. because factories are, are going up in flames and machines are being smashed so it's like anonymous so, or something they just don't know right you know the- they don't know. So, yeah. did, so you're saying it was successful. I mean, obviously not to today, not not successful for 200 years. But so the immediate success was what? The factory owners said, oh, we'll be nice to you now. We'll give you money. We'll stop <laughs> using machines. I mean, kind of immediately that was the response. So you really have this interesting moment where, again, Think of, if you think about how this is playing out, you have really a handful of a, a relative handful of the of the steeliest eyed, the the hardest headed, who really do not give a shit, and they are willing to just sort of run roughshod over people's livelihoods. They don't care if, as long as it makes them a profit. You, you're your classic caricature of you know the cigar chomping right. you know uh, industrialist or tycoon. Um, it's there's a handful of them and a lot of other people are kind of dragged kicking and screaming into this merchants small business owners going like shit we're getting our lunch eaten right now we need to we need to automate too and it was actually you i i detail in in the book this point where there's like a real debate among sort of smaller operations and some just say like you know what we see what's going on here, and we, dis- we to us, this looks immoral. If we adopt automating machinery, it's literally taking the bread out of somebody else's mouth, right. and we're not going to do that. Right. So a lot of them... But that'd be yeah. like, you know, like Dark Horse Comics or something deciding, oh, we're not going to use AI to draw our pictures, you know, even if whatever, the big boys are going to go do that stuff, and Marvel, you know, movies, yeah. we're going to keep it, keep our little craftspeople alive. Yeah. And some of them go out of business because it's just this, yeah. but it's a moral choice and it's hard. And, but so a lot of them, a lot of them do automate, but then the Luddites rise up and they're so popular and they're making this critique that probably resonates with a lot of them too. So they say, okay, good. We have an excuse now. White, we'll wave the white flag. And in Nottingham, especially, they say, okay, boom, we'll, re- we'll restore the rates to what they were before all this cratering, cratering started happening. So they got a real, they got an immediate raise. They got some protections. It only lasted about, you know, a year and a half because you have a re- of those those sort of you know the strongest and most uh, most aggressive uh, factory owners act- did the opposite and dug their heels in and they still had to compete with them um but so what you have is uh, a 
a, a respite. Basically, you have uh, some immediate raises, you have an improvement in working conditions, some assurances, some districts, it's more durable than others. Um, and then as the campaign goes on, uh, it gets most violent in, in Manchester and in, in Lancashire, where the cotton industry has taken root. Um, and it's so explosive there that it does delay the introduction of some of this uh, more f- famous automated machinery for, for years and years. And it gives the Luddites time or it gives the cloth workers time to work on reforms and to actually get some protections in place. Um, I mean, but it's it still, happens yeah. anyway. So then, I mean, but, yeah. but are the Schumpeter or whoever people are right, though, ultimately, at least until now, that then people just get retrained in something else and then you learn how to use the machines or you learn how to, you know, do some newer technique, right? Well, the problem with that is that you, even if that's the case, then you even if you do go work in the factory, um, you're still you're still sort of immiserated in a new way. Like you don't you're giving up your control, you're giving up your way of life, you're giving up a mode of work that was cherished for for right. for for centuries. So, and and the Luddites, as I alluded to earlier, they were as much against the factory and this mode of work where instead of being at home having control over your labor process having control over when you got to work as long what mattered is you got the garment done and you did a quality job you didn't have someone breathing down your neck telling you when you could take a piss when you could you know talk to your wife when right. you could go walk in the garden so they were objecting um, to they were objecting to the scale at which things were happening right so instead yeah. of being in your small plot of land growing your vegetables and selling them to people whatever now you're working for big agra instead of making a piece of cloth or a dress now you're sewing on a on a factory floor uh, in a in a you know whatever they're called i was gonna say sweat lodge but <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, yeah and you're not making as much yeah. money a lot of times yeah. you're not a lot of times you're not ma- eventually wages do ha- necessarily go up and everything but so one of the big arguments is that uh, that 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 I'm making he, and and is sort of in uh, contra to a lot of sort of like the Schumpeter types yeah. and the uh, you know uh, sort of the, the Cato industry, Institute folks today who you know are so free market is that not only is is this sort of an immediate uh, problem for the people who who are you know experiencing this disruption and they don't really dispute that ever so I think we should spend a beat longer like this is a really miserable process that can last decades so yeah on sort of on net if you look at the you know macroeconomic balance sheet yeah it does even out again ultimately more jobs are made as more demand is created and more uh, you know products come off the uh, the assembly line but but in that period, there's no there's no reason that we, as an ingenious human species, need to allow sort of mass suffering to take place in those decades in between. Right. That's that's number one. So you you know you and you see that today when people are go like, oh, you know, well, if you lose your job, you'll you'll find a new one. Yeah. For a lot of people, like your job is your life. You lose that. It's you're you're not you're you're right. not coming back. You're not exactly. you're never going to feel the same. It feels like you're the conservative, but you know, it's like I I, I even. And, you know, I mean, I had my mind changed about a lot of this when I was speaking with um, coal workers and uh, during the original Trump-Clinton election, speaking to coal workers in Pennsylvania who were like, Hillary Clinton wants to shut down our coal mines and make us work on solar panels for the Chinese. And I... 
avoid, I always understood it from the AOC perspective of Green New Deal and this is green energy and all that. But I was like, oh, I get it. You're standing on the value that your parents and your grandparents dug out of the ground. And here I am, some little white Jewish lefty telling you, you're polluting my world. Don't you do yeah. call. It's bad for your lungs. Make Use silicon, you know? Yeah. But it's disconnected. It's just, I mean, so even on a spiritual level, it's like, what the fuck? You're, you're ungrounding me. You're unmooring me from what I know. Yeah, exactly. And that gets ex- directly into the, the second point that I would make against uh, the, the, that, that sort of, uh, that, that creative destruction uh, ar- argument, which is that that calculation changes when you put the decision-making power into the workers' hands themselves. So this is all, all this is facilitated, this first go-round at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, all of this discon- discontent is because people with resources and with the capital are se- are saying, this is how things are going to be now. This is the way technology is going to be used now. You can either get on board and come work in my factory uh, or or you can or you can go hungry. And that's, it w- that's not an exaggeration. And yeah, but this if- is like Dickens' time. The little people in the streets, the little coal soot children just like oliver right this is oliver you've got no power you're just boys in a workhouse you know oliver was based on uh somebody who lived during the luddite struggle by the way and he is uh oliver twist right. he's a he's he, yeah he's a character in uh in, in, that, that i follow robert Brink, blinko that I, I write about a little bit in the book who was who was you know, he was in. He, he was shipped off to one of these factories. Uh, he was an orphan, and he was basically put into indentured servitude. Um, and he, you know, just suffers. He sees the factory system firsthand, and he suffers no great, yeah, you know, just no no end of, of of great suffering throughout his uh, his tenure there. And when he finally gets out, he tells his story to um, a, a, a child labor abolitionist who eventually gets it into gets it into print, and it's one of the catalyzings sort of uh, moments uh, to end and that kind of child labor. Um, anyways, he is a, like a sympathetic figure. Him and his peers, you know, the Luddites and the cloth workers saw what was happening to them. And they said, you know, that's everybody next. Like, we, I mean, a lot of them wanted to stop the child labor as well, but they, it was also like a portent for, for, for what was happening. <clears throat> so, and yes, so they didn't really have any real political power, but that, that that was the problem and i think that's what's applicable today like when you're talking about the coal workers like if it's like if you you know if you i we i think most people agree that you do have to find a way to wind down uh coal uh, emissions and carbon emissions and so so how do you do that other than just showing up and saying what you're doing is bad you have to stop yeah. uh you you know here's a new job it's in a solar factory where again right it's a completely different set of uh, of norms and standard yep. you you know you do who that knows? to people they're gonna go maga anti-soros anti-semite globalist panic because the luddites had a word for it and it was they hated to be to stand at their command being told what to do nobody likes it nobody likes it. i don't like it i'm sure you don't no. like it you no one wants to stand it and have an, an overseer tell them what so imagine 
imagine uh, sort of you know approaching that for the first time so a, a lot of these guys a lot of the cloth workers who had grown up in you know doing the trade plied by their fathers and grandfathers and great great grandfathers and great great great, great 200 years and then all of a sudden it's like oh no, no no now 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 you don't get to say how you do things anymore you go work in that windowless building you breathe in like the fibers from the clothing that's getting churned out by the machine you can take a bathroom break when i tell you you can you know you're here 10 hours a day every day and you know you don't get to you know you you don't get right. to sing songs in your no, house you're anymore you're working by the yeah. hour instead of working by the 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 product or the production yeah you're selling your la- and imagine just that imagine just being told that that's the reality for the first time before that you had any real concrete uh, idea that this was to be normal, that this was going to be inculcated into sort of, you would go, no, you'd go, hell no, no. Like this is, uh, I, you would, you might, right. you might take up a exactly. hammer against the it. The only people who behaved, who, who were treated like that previously were, were slaves, enslaved yeah. people, you know, to actually, this is, this hour is no longer yours. This hour yes. is mine. That's, yes. that's soul killing. I mean, it's essentially yeah. soul killing. Yeah. And so that's as much again as the machines, they were fighting against that and they and the Luddites lost and they did not lose. Another common misconception is that they lost because they were just fighting against technologies that, and, and products right. that everybody wanted. So it was the market. No, they lost because the state marshaled tens of thousands of troops to crush them. They, that they generally works, yeah. Yeah, it really, it really. <laughs> when you're a bunch of you know weavers and and, and knitters and you're you know, and and cloth finishers, and then suddenly you're up against the largest, what became the largest single domestic occupation of England, with tens of thousands of troops stationed in industrial districts. Uh, you, it's eventually you're just going to lose. God, what so, does this look like? Are these like red coats? Is it that period? They're- sometimes it, they would just march them and they'd make a big show about it they, in the beginning. But on, as a sort of a little uh, little example of just how you know how hated sort of the 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 authority was at the time, they did. They marched. They marched those those red coats right into Leeds to make a big public show. But they almost got they they. The, the crowds revolted. The cloth workers sort of started a riot they had and almost Molotov chased them out. And they whatever, said they, <laughs> little muskets and stuff. I mean, yeah. Well, they had you know they had pikes. They did right. have they had they had guns. They had the blunderbuss. They had so they but they almost chased them out. It to so they said, okay, let's not do that anymore. Right. Let's just kind of quietly set up the garrisons uh, out by the factory. So you could literally kind of interpret it as these battle lines are drawn right where industrialization is happening, where industrialization is, is unfolding. So you have like real, you know, war zones sort of set up at, at the, the front lines of industrialization. And this, you know, that sometimes that culminates in a riot where a bunch of Luddites are, are, are killed uh, sometimes it it just it means that the Luddites are turned away. There's a famous it kind of the it, it, at least in the sort of the the story of the Luddites and there's there's the famous battle at Rawfold's Mill, which is sort of 
the you know the luddites really try to take on one of these huge factories that's been fortified and has mercenaries and the soldiers are stationed nearby and uh over a hundred luddites kind of attack it and they get they didn't know that it had been fortified this way inside where it was made to be a fortress they had like gun slots and they were ready to pour uh you know boiling tar on them and they just get gunned down um and, and, and turned away, and it's kind of the most humiliating defeat uh, for for the Luddites. And the ne- over the next few months, the authorities track down anybody who is involved in it, and they end up hanging dozens of of, of the Luddites who participated either there or in this other machine breaking. Um, and that's the culmination. Right. I got. I, I also got to reiterate that the, it began as this very sort of strategic, almost like gentle. Like they would warn the factory owner, take down your automating machines. Yeah. If you if you don't, you'll get a visit from Ned. Led's army and then if they didn't they would kind of yes they might hold them up by gunpoint or they might sneak in through a window and they'd break just the automating machinery they just break right. that everything else all the old machines all the old tools everything else they might have in the factory they'd leave and they'd say keep it keep it down if you don't if, if you don't bring them back then you're you'll be fine if you do we'll come back and right. we'll do the whole place so it was really very tactical in the beginning, but as sort of tensions mounted and the troops got called in and things got more dire, it became a, you know, the parliament, instead of, you know, passing a minimum wage or sending any assistance to, to the cloth workers, they decided to make it a crime punishable by death to just to smash a machine. Um, and that a lot of these legacies are imprinted sort of at this point, most forcefully that live on forever, that, you know, capital equipment is to be valued over worker, uh, you know, workers lives uh that if you you know if you have a grievance though even if it's not being addressed uh you know you 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 have to sit down and be quiet and sort of industrial might is to be preference over that um it really sort of set a lot of profit pre- uh, right. precedence about well, where this yeah. yeah and you look today i mean not to flash forward in too jolting a fashion no, but sure. even today you know uh uh, e- uh many ethical labor and political activists will say well eh, to attack the network is you know if you were actually going to attack the internet itself or attack google itself that is sort of forbidden that is a forbidden crime that's unethical yeah you know a ddos (laughs) attack or i mean uh, uh, i mean the workers, uh, the Uber workers, for example, don't and can't organize in the same way yeah. that the, the Luddites did. Or yeah. Google workers, I mean, they kind of do. They get mad and they they won't make a war machine or they, you know, they've had a few, they've pushed back a bit. But in, in the grand scheme of things, I mean, maybe SAG and the WGA, they think they're fighting against AI, kind of? Yeah, I, you know, I think that's probably the clearest parallel is that at least in, you know, so first of all, we're not going to see the same level of sort of industrial sabotage yet, just if by virtue of the fact that we have at least some nominal, you know, democratic channels and 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 uh, available to, to workers, you go, you could form a union, you can agitate, you know, this England was not a democracy, England had outlawed unions. So both of those were off the table. And then times got so tough. So they did have their back against the wall. And Luddism was a tactic of last resort. Um, that said, I think the spirit of Luddism can inform some of the uh, 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 sort of the tactics that are being adopted today. And I think SAG is the biggest one in that they singled out 
a technology that studios were hoping to use to exploit their labor and they said no so instead of it's something we don't see a ton of these days or we haven't until recently where it's like you can't no you cannot use that the answer is no uh it's going in our contract that uh that if anyone's going to decide how to use uh ai it's us you don't get to use it to make scripts bar none no um, and the fact that they won that fight is is pretty encouraging. I mean, there's still a lot of issues, and there were it's it's still going to be a rear guard action in, in a lot of ways. But I that that to me is sort of a modern iteration of Luddism in rejecting that. But you are right; like it is so much harder, or at least it was for the last ten years, while the halo of Silicon Valley was kind of fading, and people sort of it was so diffuse, and there were some bad things happening, but it was a little more difficult to sort of pinpoint exactly where. But yeah, I I, I know I, I mentioned in the book that one of the ingenious and and, and troubling uh, parts of sort of this like late stage technologized capitalism, whatever you want to call it, is that it has distributed sort of those targets and and capital equipment among everyone. So when you, when when for instance Uber moves into France, where there's very sort of a more powerful taxi guild, uh, and the, they want to protest it. You can't just go to the Uber boss's house where there's a big, you know, right. Uber and smash his machine that's generating Uber. You turn on each other. They turned on the. They turned on people who were using their own cars to right. drive uh, Uber, and they smashed them in the streets. So it was a really sad sort of example of just how contorted this has all become. Um, I do think another place where a lot of sort of the spirit of Luddism is is alive is that we are now seeing a correct in many cases uh, sort of more uh, vociferous criticism of the tech titans directly. Uh, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are no longer sort of regarded as you know Iron Men. They are you know in a lot of people's eyes they're they're very villainous, yeah. and in others it's more complex. I know, but and that more, was really yeah. you know I mean honestly the logic behind my own book survival of the richest and sort of exposing this one group i don't even know if they're typical but you know this one group of billionaires who are looking to uh, escape you know was to sort of expose them uh, on a level it's like look they don't even intend to stay here you know it was yeah. <laughs> it's like can that open the discussion <laughs> yeah. that they're not operating with goodwill you know and it, yeah. you know so that was that was good to sort of open up this you know the, the their their whole transhuman uh uh you know test grail you know uh, uh, escape uh, escape plan or or their effective altruism yeah, that's a great example. That was a great book. And it, 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 well, the point was, I think you're exactly right. You're exactly right. It's just that they have such little interest. And just like the tech titans of 200 years ago, in sort of conducting them in a way that would benefit the communities. And they that, like you said, that whole, the whole sort of framework of that book just opens that, that blows it wide open. And I think it's, I think that's the majority at least have those inclinations. Maybe not all of them are building the survival bunkers, but sometimes it feels like it's yeah, all of them. They may as well but. be. I mean, they may <laughs> as well be. But there was a period, it's funny, when when I was coming up in the 80s and early 90s, there was this guy, Chris Carlson, 
who had a magazine called Processed World yeah. that we loved because like computers were coming into the places where we worked. And it was like, here, take a magnet and rub it on top of that hard drive and it's going to make your boss really upset. You know, all these little things that we could do. But that was like early sabotage of the processed world that we were moving into. Yeah. Yeah. I met Chris on the book tour. Uh, it, that was, it was one of the delightful moments. Uh, he came out to a reading and just a really, really, really great guy, it seems. Um, and Process World was, yeah, was a real inspiration. I have, uh, I, I, you can still get them on eBay, some of like the collected volumes of the, uh, of their old magazines. Cause yeah, they, I mean, they, just like the Luddites, you know, I feel like we're right about a lot of things. They were right about a lot of things, you know, 50 years ago or 20. Or, or 30 or 40 years ago and it the the landscape has a, you know accelerated in some ways we're dealing with more instantiations of these things but the same underlying principle i think is correct and there's like there's that i think it gidget digits uh article about about sabotage where she's like it's kind of a just asking questions but like you know like what if we you know what if we engaged in a little bit more sort of you know uh, office office destruction of 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 like machine little things you know to it, it, which was also sort of manifested in, in cultural products like, you know, office space, the famous smashing right. the, yeah. I mean, so which we, is we, wrong. It feels wrong, right? A DDoS attack feels wrong because it screws up. I mean, you know what? I do understand the idea that an attack on the network is an attack on society, that it's not just an attack on on the bad guys. But I, I mean, and, and the SAG thing fills me with some hope, although I have a different view of the whole strike, I think was more about Netflix and other streamers trying to reduce the amount of uh, productions they had under contract. They overbought and needed a way to yeah. sell. So they create a strike for 90 days. Um, and then and then they force majeure their way out of contracts. I mean, that two of mine, uh, it's, uh, two of my options, you know, got got killed that way. So I, I understand that technique as well. But you you see hope in the this the, the future of our relationship to these technologies. Yeah, I, f I see hope in the way that more people are asserting their right to have a say in how these technologies are developed and deployed, right? Like, I think for too long, we kind of just let Silicon Valley punch the ticket and do what it wanted and, and without necessarily kind of realizing that, you know, what they're doing is creating a series of social contracts with us on a lot of these products that they're making. And we're allowing them to dictate the terms of that we're allowing them to build safe facebook and to say like this is how this is this is the terms and and, and conditions, conditions yeah. of, of how you use this yeah the you we're gonna make we're gonna give you uber if you want to drive and and do gig work you have to do it on our terms and i think People are kind of getting fed up with that one-sidedness or it, it go, Amazon warehouses. Um, generative AI, I think, is maybe the, the the straw that broke the camel's back because it to so many people, especially in creative professions, it just seems so invasive and exploitative and existentially threatening to them that it's finally too much to bear. That wait, wait, wait a minute! You just ingested my work that I, you know, I'm trying to make a living off of. In 
into your system. Now somebody can hit a button and spit it out and rep- and, and replicate it without uh, about, while getting around copyright concerns and just sort of use that in their presentation instead of paying me. I think to a lot of people that feels like a kind of a clarifying moment where it just feels so much more exploitative. You know, right. writer strikes, same thing. You're going to auto-generate this text. They may understand or see that it sucks, but they also feel sort of innately and that they weren't they weren't even asked right that's the biggest thing i feel like tech has gotten the 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 biggest movers and shakers in tech and in silicon valley have gotten so used to just doing and not asking assuming that it's just this one-way street that they just get to do what they want without there being any uh you know any any sort of democratic inputs uh, necessary Uh, but these are we understand now that this is a social issue that this is a society-wide uh, a problem that we need to sort of assert <laughs> more control over. It shouldn't just be a handful of white guys in Silicon Valley determining de- determining how we use technology or who gets to use technology, who gets to benefit from technology, who it serves. Right. So, but we don't even have a working government to help decide that sort of thing. We can't even, you know, uh, d- decide on. We can't even implement a. a bipartisan border control solution, much less uh, uh, the, a future of labor <laughs> under AI solution. Oh, no. Yeah, no. I mean, it's don't get me wrong. It's it's still extremely grim. It's still <laughs> extremely dark out there. But but, you know, like last year, last year, we had a huge uh, movement of of new sort of labor organizing. We had a lot of victories uh, that that might have been unthinkable even, you know, five years ago or so. Uh, it, you know, they may seem few and far between, and we're, sti- we're still not at the, sort of the union density we need to be at, but organized labor is one of the best ways of sort of negotiating right. those sort of social contracts with technology that we have. But it does seem to me that, I mean, uh, industrial agriculture aside, because, you know, agriculture reduces labor at the cost of topsoil and, and the environment. I mean, it turns out agriculture is more labor intensive than we are admitting because you've got to do things smaller to to keep things alive but but yeah. that aside and assuming we can you know put a few more million people on on farming to do it in a permacultural way it feels like a lot of these technologies are going to replace human labor and that's not necessarily bad you know you're going to lay bricks to build a building you know it's like yes the the master mason might move the cement in some beautiful way but it's possible that robots could lay the bricks really well and get that look of a hand-laid brick building and the only problem then is okay so if we only need 50 percent of the human labor that we needed before um why is that a problem? I keep, you know, I just did that thing. I did this thing a few months ago with Jake Tapper about AI. And he's like, well, what about the unemployment problem? And I said, well, what about the unemployment solution? I don't want yeah. a job. I, I, <laughs> I want stuff, you know? <laughs> so, so I'll say the two things to that is like, yeah. So the tr- if the trend is is that way, if you got the robotic bricklayer and it's going to reduce the labor that the worker can have, 
how do we give those the workers how do we give the bricklayer unions the, some input into the transition right how do you how do you how do you give them the option because what you're probably going to get is okay so you got an older bricklayer who's been doing it for you know 30 years maybe ready to retire it, maybe if you if you allow them to have a say into the democratic process of developing technology then maybe they say you know what I'm out I'll take a buyout maybe somebody is this like I die hard bricklayer i want to keep laying bricks till the day i die by and large you're going to see some attrition probably and you can have a much more what if they're just the worker owners of the bricklaying co-op the then the the, they keep their shares the robots do the bricks and then they give the shares to their kids and their grandkids and you have a whole legacy i was how do you get to live and drive around and do all these things without working oh my great-grandfather was a bricklayer yes 100 percent. that's another option with that one me too make that Yes, we hit that, but again, we got to find ways. <laughs> you gotta, that's perfect. That would be fun. But again, that only results from empowering workers to be able to make that call in the first place, to be building right. up those co-ops, being able to have that say. So most workers are not in any way uh, you know, positioned to make to make a call like that or to be able to well, enjoy an outcome like that. Unless they're in the Mondragon, you know, one of those co-ops or something. We, we need more stuff like that. I mean, I think uh, I, it's a real challenge, but like, I think like the driver app co-ops that compete with uber are really interesting because you can also make them cheaper for drive uber's taking like 50 percent or right. more after every right you don't need that yeah. if you have the good libertarian you, competition it turns out the it, worker owned one can do it cheaper than the corporate owned one because you don't have to pay all those fucking shareholders oh, that's right so let's you get win. a couple yeah you get a couple web devs to like build your app and then you have a localized you know what i would love to see more stuff like that yeah but they'll um, regulate us is the problem that that the 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 Ubers and the wealthy ones have a seat at the regulation table and we'll figure out a way to make it so our little worker-owned ones can't compete. Yeah, well, that's the struggle. That's the struggle for sure. And Right, you know, so it's the, not, yeah. I mean, to be clear, it's not the technology. Yes, it's almost the, never no. the technology. It's not oh, the weaving looms. It's not the Uber thing. It's the business models yes. that run the things. Absolutely. I mean, Uber is just a GPS and a web interface. Like, it's not. Uh, yeah, it's, it's not it's a GPS and Venmo, basically. Yeah, you know? and maybe not... a, a you know a, a a dating app. You know. Yeah, they're not curing polio. They're not like inventing nuclear fusion. It's, right. It's a really simple simple web app that really just got at the, at the heart of an idea that sort of they were able to kind of do some labor arbitrage yes. and they were able to get some venture capital to thrust them into new markets that's it it was not the technology it's the idea again it's the uh, it's it's the it's the construct and the way that it's being used it, it's the social context and that's you know that's what it all comes down to and that's what we again have to assert ourselves and more i know i know it's grim out there and i know it's hard and it does right. feel like a losing battle sometimes, but there's nothing determined about the technology or the development of technology itself. We can adapt it to these social contexts that we want it to be adapted to. Right. And it's uh, odd, though, that we as as tech writers, I mean, I was dragged into it when the, the AOL Time Warner merger is what dragged me into thinking about like economics. And I was a tech guy, video games, media, you know, but, you know, we got dragged into this. Uh, it's like us and then like like these laboring people like, you know, Astra Taylor and Tom Gokey and you know the 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 those guys it's like are are talking about it's a weird 
marriage refu- of, yeah. of, of intellectual tr- tribes trying to solve this kind of future of work problem now. Yeah. And it, you know, and I think the tent is just getting bigger and bigger. And that's another source of hope is that now after sort of those, the, the, the hype campaigns and the do no evils and the, you know, people still love Apple, I guess, but you, we, we can see now what the net effect has been for a lot of these technologies and that's to accelerate inequalities and to concentrate power in the hands of a of a few tech monopolies and most people don't like that that's why one of these few uh bipartisan issues i mean it's not like we really have the votes to get anything serious done right now or you know that there's not a lot of hope in the near future for serious legislative responses but it is telling that you have people like josh Hawley decrying big tech on one side and bernie sanders decrying big tech on one side and this whole sort of teeming voice of of discomfort with what's going on it's more visceral than it has been before i know Um, but you also got you know uh uh like Alex Jones and Steve Bannon reading yeah. from the same out loud from some of my books on their shows, <laughs> you know, talking about, you know, the the George Soros global technocracy, you know, yeah. they're, they're one third correct. In yeah. what they're saying, <laughs> as right? They, as it often goes, yeah. Yeah, no, I, Donald Trump posted one of my articles to Truth Social last year. There you go, and, Mazel yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's like, okay, well, you know, there's probably, there's something bouncing around in there that I feel like is it, it, is correct. I don't have a lot of hope that it can be like, you know, harnessed towards any right. productive policy uh, solution, but it should, it should give us like a little bit of, of, of hope that that the animosity is out there it can be tapped into you know not everybody and you could even argue maybe optimistically that most of steve bannon's listeners are are not as mind melted as he is and that have some genuine you know uh real concerns that can be addressed or perhaps it's just i feel like there are ways to sort of dig into this into this dialogue that 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 we can sort of grind out some real paths forward i don't know maybe i'm just a, an eternal even after writing this book people assume that i'm so yeah. that i'm just like oh he, brian merchant just thinks that uh that you know is a doomer and that tech's just going to destroy us all and we're going to we're doomed to like sort of another of you know luddite campaign in vain but no like i i do see like a sliver it's like a maybe a a warped you know path through a funhouse mirror but we can we can get there i mean the hope in your work is there's this there's the the continuity of the human struggle through it you know which is sort of the team human thing but even from a a slightly more desperate place maybe because you're you're observing humans in in desperate times but the the human the spirit human soul our ability to forge solidarity against all odds you know in order to uh, uh, preserve what it means to be human in increasingly exploitative and technologically uh, mediated climates. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think there's all, nothing more team human than that early Luddite struggle because, you know, they were also, it, to them, it felt like a lot like it's it's felt 
to us for the last five or or, or, or ten years, where all with where AI and sort of all this emphasis on 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 these sort of technological vessels that are going to bring about some unrecognizable modernity. Um, you know, that's the the pundit class and the Silicon Valley keeps sort of you know pushing that 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 vision. And back then, it was it was not so different. They had what they called the machinery question, where they're debating sort of whether or not machinery is going to be taken over is going to be used to take over sort of their their world and yes there's like some issues of pastoralism is it going to like take over the countryside um is it going to sort of you know cause pollution and sort of crowd up but they had a lot of these same same concerns even then like are we going to lose our agency to the machine and the people that own them or is it going to sort of take over not just our jobs but our very humanity and so the luddite struggle was an answer to that question right. in favor of team human they were saying you know what like technology that is hurtful to commonality is mm. what we should oppose technology that's hurtful to commonality stuff that is going to hurt more people than it's going to help we have to make sure we fight that stuff and embrace what we know can be used for the for, for the, ben- the for the communal benefit so that at the core, I think, speaks to what the Luddites' mission was. And it was absolutely, uh, you know, a sort of this mass vote in favor of Team Human. Right. But it requires a, a post-individualist model of the world. You know, it's not, what can I get out of this? It's, how are we going to be affected by this? And you've got to understand it in terms of your neighborhood and your community and your, yeah. your fellow workers. Yeah, and that's one reason that they were able to be so powerful and and so sort of such a fearsome force. They had these immense bonds of solidarity because you grew up in a weaving town. You guess what? You knew everybody, and everybody was in the same boat as you. If times were tough, and times got really tough, and you weren't just thinking about your own bottom line, your farm. You're thinking about your neighbor who's got uh, who can't feed his kids. You're thinking about uh, you, people, the merchant who is a who is resisting technology to his own detriment you're thinking about these things that are that are affecting the entire communal bonds that hold your neighborhood together so yeah it's absolutely that and and that sort of was the under uh, the the underpinning of of the of the luddite struggle and you know, it was really remarkable. Like they would put huge bounties up for Luddites. If you, anyone with, uh, you know, information about who burned down the factory last weekend, here, here's like as much money as you'll make in 10 years. No one would come forward because there was just so much solidarity in these communities and so much support for what they were doing and a little, you know, fear about the blowback too, sure. But it was, it was time and time again, they would get nobody. They would have to pay some informers to try to infiltrate the groups and they couldn't really do that again because the solidarity was so strong between these brotherhoods of workers and people. Now they'll just hack our, uh, hack our Gmail accounts and, <laughs> they'll try see yeah. everything uh so are you still doing your your sci-fi are you doing terraform is that still around uh terraform went on hiatus when uh vice went bankrupt so maybe if oh, they they went find- bankrupt see I, i'm not following up with anything are they around they still are publishing they're just yeah. bankrupt but publishing okay they like any of us the- yeah <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, they lost a lot of people. Uh, they, um, yeah, I, they were kind of shitty in some ways, though. You know, 
they they I mean, everyone's shitty in some ways is, you know, what it comes down to. I mean, any of these companies, and if they don't start out shitty, they kind of get shitty. It's in shittification, as, as Corey would say. In shittification writ large, you, know, you have yeah. to in shittify to stay alive unless you, you establish genuine, genuinely great horizontal labor relations. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, Vice was uh, as a for, like from a managerial perspective, it was a nightmare. I, you know, I was involved in the union drive, what feels like a billion years ago there because they were paying people, you know, less than $30,000 to live in New York City while the while while Shane Smith went around and talked about how it was fine because all of his employees were trustafarians and yeah. it was everyone was like, well, excuse me. So organizing advice gave me such a skewed uh, view of uh what uh, labor organizing uh, could be because we went does anyone think we should uh, form a union here and like you know 90 hands shoot up in a room like near unanimous nearly unanimous just it mm. was just it was so easy because everybody was so ground out there so what is what's what's next for you then or, or is it too early to think of it? you've only been released from the times for like six days or something but um what yeah. are you? What are you thinking? I mean, it's so hard. I'm I'm lucky because you know, in 2007 during that mortgage crisis crash, I went and got a PhD because I was thinking, shit, this publishing thing may not, you know. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm selling, you know, I'm selling, I'm writing more important books, but they're kind of not selling the same way they did back in the 90s. The book industry changed, you know, with yeah. everybody on LinkedIn publishing their own book. So it was yeah. a, it's just a little different. And yeah. that's sort of so that's my health insurance. That's like my nut is teaching now. But yeah. um what what are you thinking? Yeah. No, I mean it's a great question. I so this is the second or third depending on how you count it job that I've that has kind of gone up in a chuff of smoke amid yeah. mass layoffs cuz it happened at medium too and when they when they cut all of medium's editorial staff they kept on some writers but they yeah. got rid of uh, the 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 staff editorial um, yeah they all scattered to fast company the atlantic inside i mean LA i times. still know them yeah. all yeah like time yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah i mean it's am i going to keep doing that i got two kids uh am i going to keep doing this am i going to like you know economically like i'm lucky that 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 i'm okay but it's again i i i have been working my ass off for the last 20 years you yeah. know pub i've been publishing books i've been you know do you know try getting into the speaking game a little bit so you know it's but it's like it's, it does it can feel like a hamster wheel you know it may be time to sort of uh you know consider other yeah consider teaching i i have healthcare and all that my my wife is a is an academic she teaches at lmu um so we were i'm fortunately covered covered there yeah. too um but you know i don't know i might i might i might look into researching ai i might i i I'll probably just like hem and haw for another week or two and then just go find a more journalism jobs to you know because yeah. it's what i it's it's, it's, it's what i do it's i what know you do. i always do that i poke around it's like all right all right another book <laughs> God damn it. Yeah. yeah. I'll do what I, I do. Way <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, I've always done it. Yeah. Now I got another, I'm on contract for another book. So I, I have, I have another book to write. Um, I, I guess I probably can't discuss that one yet. It's but not that's quite, great. I, it's, another yeah. book. It means the world will get another book. Yeah. Still. 
Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it yeah. It means I also have to write it. So uh, yeah. there's there's always that uh, that process. It's way less fun well. than it looks like. <laughs> it's like it can be like very fun for like one day and then yeah. miserable for like ten days. Yeah, yeah it's it, it, it's always a it's always a, a, a process for sure. Um, but yeah, no, it'll be it'll be fun. I'm sure I'll find. I've had so many wonderful people reach out to me, and I just I'll just use this as an opportunity to thank all them who've people from all different magazines and institutes and uh, who are interested in, in in working with me. And it's it was nice to. People really liked this column. I feel like I yeah. I was lucky. I was lucky to have an editor who was not afraid to publish it because it was we could get pretty aggressive on some of this stuff, and and it was it was great to really have a venue to sort of do some real you know accountability, real sort of uh, take labor side in the in the in the tech debate, and which doesn't often get shared. And yeah, uh, yeah, we published some great my and my editor. Uh, it's, is it was is was let go too um so i'm sure he'll find something great too yeah. well but, i uh, guess i'll see on substack with everyone <laughs> <laughs> uh, i wouldn't i would be lying if i didn't say i was wasn't wasn't considering it so. yeah it's not yeah. so bad it's not so yeah. bad although now there's supposedly nazis there and i gotta watch yeah. out for them and it's like oh i just just got myself set up there now i gotta leave because of nazis uh, i'll see nazis man they're it's everywhere always, yeah. they're everywhere uh, all right well thanks brian thanks first thanks for the book it it was very encouraging blood in the machine the origins of the rebellion against big tech you know now because i'm in whatever the opposite of the origins are is where i am <laughs> the end phase the end phase yeah, yeah. yeah. The last, the last stand, or the the digital Alamo, but uh, we'll see. We'll be fine. Humans, humans, humans will be fine somehow. We'll figure yeah, it out. Well, we humans just gotta gotta keep fighting. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, this was great fun. I'm a you know fan of the pod. I've enjoyed your work for who knows how Aww, long now. So thanks, and I yours. I was it was inspirational to see this thing in the L.A. Times for this long because it's like the only other places you see it would be like you know on Paris Marx's Substack or something, right? To <laughs> yeah, see which stuff. is great. But yeah, yeah it, which yeah. is great. But the fact that it was acknowledged by a major, you know what I mean. And it's yeah. something, you know, Cleveland plane dealer or larger is, you know, mainstream <laughs> <Yeah>. to me. <laughs> it, it was nice. It was, it was, it was good while it lasted. Yeah. Yeah. And we're here to, we're still here to tell the tale. That's right. All right. Cheers. Thanks, man. Yeah. Cheers. And thank you for being on Team Human. You can find out more about Brian Merchant at his website, bryantmerchant.org, or check out the links to his work in our show notes. One way you can join in the fight for human autonomy in an age of machines is to go to teamhuman.fm and click on support. Become a supporting member of the team, get access to our Discord, free access to live events, all sorts of great stuff. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chaplin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.